if the resurrection is true, and it is, then there is no limit to what God could ask of us. I mean, think about what would happen in your life if you really believed the resurrection were true. Think about the way that you would gladly fight sin in a new way, that you would push back and you would try to get a foretaste of what that is like. And it's unlike anything you've ever experienced or even heard described. It's like a tune you've always heard but never sung. It's like something you've always known existed but never tasted, a texture you've always longed to feel but never touched, a feeling you've always craved but never felt. And you see it now, and in seeing it, everything becomes clear. And your Father in Heaven says, isn't this amazing? You say, yes. And He says, I gave you tastes of it on earth. And you say, well, hindsight's 2020. Welcome to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. It's Owasso 40 years ago. It's a country village. When Paul lived in Ephesus, he had a three-year ministry from AD 52 to 55. He preached the gospel. There was a young man in the shadows of the crowd named Epaphras who responded to faith of Paul's preaching in Ephesus. And Epaphras goes back to his hometown in Colossae and he plants a church. And in Colossae, it was a group mainly of Greeks but Antiochus the Great in the second century BC, he relocated hundreds of Jewish families to this country village. And when he did that, unmoored from Jerusalem, these Jewish families began to believe a warped kind of Judaism with a syncretism all its own that had given into a kind of folk religion, worship of angels, certain aesthetic rules. And Epaphras visits Paul in Rome six years after this church plant gets started, and he tells Paul about this teaching that's going on in Colossae. And so Paul writes a letter, one of his prison epistles, along with you know, Philippians and Ephesians and Philemon. He writes Colossians, and he writes them to refute this heresy and to call them back to a life of integrity in light of the resurrection of Jesus. There is a shaman-like man in Colossians 2.8. You can see a hint of reference to it there who had a huge following and people began to follow this man into a kind of syncretistic religion that was no gospel at all. So if you're willing and able, let's stand together and I'll read from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. By the time we get to this point in the book, Paul has made the argument that Christ has absolute supremacy. And he writes these words. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, 
impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And on account of all these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If the resurrection is true, and it is, then there is no limit to what God could ask of us. If the resurrection is true, and it is, then there is no limit to what God could ask of us. Children, I want you to think about this phrase. Put on your pajamas. Put on your PJs. And listen to that over the course of this sermon as I talk about this passage in God's Word. Friends, imagine with me that I'm at your bedside. And I'm quoting to you Psalm 23. Your family is singing hymns around you. And you lay dying. The hospice nurse has retreated into the shadows of the room. And you pass quietly and peacefully into the presence of your Savior. And you see Jesus' face for the first time. And your Father in heaven welcomes you into his presence because you are clothed not with accolades of your own, but with the righteousness of Jesus. You believed in Christ on earth and you turned from your self-saving strategies and had faith in Christ's life for you. And you're kind of shocked and surprised. You're dead, but you're alive. Grace, so beautiful. You're not yet in your resurrected body, which comes at the end of time when Christ comes again, but you're in the intermediate state. You're there. And the shock of grace prepares you for this intense rest that is now yours. Utter peace, love, harmony, communion with God and self and others as you await your resurrected body. 
And it's unlike anything you've ever experienced or even heard described. It's like a tune you've always heard but never sung. It's like something you've always known existed but never tasted, a texture you've always longed to feel but never touched, a feeling you've always craved but never felt. And you see it now, and in seeing it, everything becomes clear. And your Father in heaven says, isn't this amazing? You say, yes. And he says, I gave you tastes of it on earth. And you say, well, hindsight's twenty twenty. And you think, from the moment I believed, grace was offered to me to taste a sense of this and the deeper joys. And you think to yourself, did I drink deeply of it? Did I partake of shallower wells all my life? Oh, if I could only have known what it would have been like. Sex only pointed to it. Quenching my thirst only gave me satisfaction for a moment. Satiating my hunger only happened momentarily. And the meaning of Matthew 13, the story of the man who found a treasure buried in a field becomes so real to you. A man, the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure buried in his field and in his joy, he sells everything he has and he buys the field. American theologian Ron Sider was talking to a German theologian named Wolfhard Pannenberg twice in the conversation with this man, if you know Pannenberg, you know that name. It's a, it's a name that John Piper studied under when he was in Germany. He's an evangelical German theologian who passed away a number of years ago. And twice in the conversation, Pannenberg says, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it was a very unusual event. And secondly, that if you believed it happened, you have to change the way you live. Many of us know the name Jordan Peterson. He's a wildly popular Canadian professor, wrote 12 Rules of Life. Some of you have read it. The Tulsa pastors were talking about an interview he did just this week, earlier in March. And in the interview, Peterson says, I've seen sometimes the objective world and the narrative world touch. He's not a Christian, by the way. And when the objective reality of what is true, beautiful, and good, and my understanding of it touch, I've had this many times in my life. I'm like, whoa, like I want to believe. And I think the idea of like the person of Christ being like the union of those things makes total sense. I sense I believe. It's like undeniable, but I don't, I don't know what to make of it, partly because believing that is terrifying to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. It's terrifying, really, because there is no limit to what would happen if you acted as if God really exists. If the resurrection is true, then there is no limit, friends, to what God could ask of us. Jonathan Edwards wrote resolutions when he was 19 years old. And the very first resolution he wrote, these were things he resolved to do all of his life. He said, resolve that I will do whatever I think to be the most adequate to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. He gets to resolution number seven. He said, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were my last hour to live. 
If the resurrection is true, then there is no limit to what God could ask of us. Amen? We know it intellectually, but we don't live it. Jordan Peterson said, one of the obstacles to faith is that I, I'm captivated by the idea of Christianity, and I understand the hypocrisy and the nature of sin, but when I look at the church, it's like, how could they possibly say they believe in this radical idea of a resurrection? I mean, their lives should be so radically transformed, nobody could stop them. And that was true in the early church, wasn't it? Polycarp, 86 years old, said, I have lived, the Lord has been faithful to me all these decades. How can I now deny my Savior? And they put him to death in a Roman Colosseum. I mean, think about what would happen in your life if you really believed the resurrection were true. Think about the way that you would gladly fight sin in a new way, that you would push back and you would try to get a foretaste of what that is like. And Paul in Colossians chapter 3 begins to say, if you have been raised with Christ, it's a first-class condition in Greek, which means, and you have, then set your mind on things that are above. Seek the things that are above. In Colossae back then, there were all kinds of syncretistic visions and versions of the true gospel. Co-mingling of this Judaism with Jesus, just like there is today in Tulsa. I mean, crying out loud. Uh, it's Jesus in me. I'm his homeboy. I don't need the church. I just need a relationship with God. We have so perverted the whole idea of covenant community that we are fighting as a church to, to re-experience it together. That's why we want you in community groups. It's not because we want to say this, this many people are in community groups. It's because of your deeper joy. So that one of these days when you're there in the presence of your Savior, you're going to say, I tasted it. I tasted it. It wasn't even close. But I tasted it. Paul here gives us a truth and a practice that we as a church need to know and live into. Here's the truth. Truth is you have been raised with Christ. You died with him if you're a Christian, and you've also been raised with him. And that assumes verse 3. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you've ever seen a foster parent go before a court to, a, to adopt their foster child. Some of us have seen this. They give you an oath. And when you take that oath, you say, I give this child my name, my rights, everything that I have, I give it to this child. It's beautiful. And that's what your Savior has done for you. The gospel is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's like allow yourself to be loved by an infinitely holy God who completes for you what you can never complete in your sin. And he says to you, you're my child. I put my name on you. And you have a big brother in Jesus who stands at the right hand of the Father. It says he is seated, which means he's accomplished. He's not standing to do more work. He's accomplished it. He's seated at the right hand of God, having had victory over death. And Paul says your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul uses language here of Isaiah and the Psalms to express the security that we have in our Father. Isaiah 49.2, He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me like a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. Psalm 27 
For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Psalm 31, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take, ref worked for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. The believer has died in Christ. It's an aorist tense. He continues to live. It's, it's, he has died. It's a reality. And therefore, he continues to live with Christ in the present. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's perfect tense. And it suggests three thoughts. Number one, you have a new identity. That your citizenship is in heaven. And number two, that that identity is as secure as a safety deposit box in the safest bank in the world. It can never be taken away. And number three, that our life is one with Christ who is in the bosom of the Father. And just as Christ rose again, so also we have foretastes of that now. And also when Christ comes again and all the world is renewed and remain. And if that is true, therefore there's a practice. And if it's true that we have died and our lives are hidden in Christ with God, then there's a practice. And the practice is seek the things that are above. Inquire about them. Go after them. Be active about them. Why do you have a quiet time? Why do you read the Bible? You're seeking after it. You're looking for it. You want to know more about this deep joy. And then it says set your mind. It's an intellectual exercise as well. You want to grow in knowledge about this. You pursue deeper knowledge. Knowledge of what? Of the things above. In, in that day, in Colossians, there was this aestheticism about worshiping angels and about these certain rules of what you could and could not do. And, and Paul is saying, put to death what is earthly in you. Like, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. Take those anxieties that you feel in the carpool line and in paying bills at the end of the month and in relationships that have tension in them and bring them to me. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to hide you just like a parent would pull their children behind them and protect them in the midst of their enemies. I'm going to provide for you. And he says, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is interceding for us right now. So we are to set our minds on the things that are above. If the resurrection were true, and it is. There's no limit to what God can ask of us. You set your mind on things that are above. And what does that look like? How do we do that? Paul gives this idea of putting off and putting on. Children, when you, when you hear your parents say, go, go get your PJs on, you think about what Paul says in the book of Colossians about putting off and putting on. What does he say to take off? He says, I want you to put off sexual immorality, put to death what is in you. That means it's violence. You got to fight it. Put to death what is in you. If you've ever gone hunting and you've killed an animal and then you've skinned it, it is not a clean process. Neither is fighting temptation. And if your hands aren't muddy from the fight, then you're probably not pushing hard enough or fighting hard enough because it's messy. Put to death what is in you. 
Put them all away, verse 8. And then put on then them. Change your clothing. Become who you are. Step into it. And Paul says, what are we to put to death? We're to put to death sexual immorality. Porneia refers to illicit sexual intercourse. Impurity. We're to put any form of moral impurity away. Passions, pathos. We're to, we're to take um, over desires and we're to put them away. Evil desire. It's a means of evil in a more general sense. The backbiting and wanting to get back at people and craving something that isn't yours. Covetousness, he mentions next. A desire for more. Any materialistic desire or lust that disregards the rights of others. All these things lead to idolatry. And scholars will point out that, that all five of these things actually have a sexual connotation, which is appropriate, don't you think, in our life? Either things today have a political connotation or a sexual one. And here, all five of these things have a, have a sexual connotation. And so much sin derives from unrequited sexual desires, don't they? God made us to delight in sex in particular ways for his pleasure. Uniquely, it points us to a longing that cannot be fulfilled or fully satiated on this earth. And so God says, I want you to enjoy sex, believers, in the confines of a marriage, man and woman. It is a way to point you to Christ's love for his bride. It's to give you a foretaste of what that's like. And sometimes people will say, well, will we long for sex in heaven? And the answer is, it is only an appetizer to the joy you'll have in heaven. You won't even ask that question in the presence of your Savior because he will be there. And for the first time in your life, all the longings, the echoes will be heard loud and clear and satisfied deeply in his presence. He says, therefore, put off like children taking off your daytime clothes and putting on your pajamas. And then he says, put on. In light of being raised with Christ, we have some responsibilities. You are to put on some things in light of Christ. So you put them on. And you have to be intentional about it. And so you take things that Christ has asked you to put on, and you put on what? You put on compassionate hearts. You show sensitivity to those who are suffering in need. And what else do you put on? You put on kindness. It manifests itself in a sweet disposition and thoughtful interpersonal dealings. You put on humility. It means you have a realistic view of yourself. We think lowly of ourselves because we are. You put on meekness. It means not having or behaving harshly or arrogantly or self-assertively, but with the consideration of others. You put on patience, the quality of being long-suffering, self-restraining. You're forbearing. It means you, you put up with others. You endure discomfort. You forgive others. You don't hold a grudge against them. You love them. You take off one set of clothes and you put on another. If the resurrection were true, there's no limit to what God could ask of you. And as you begin to practice these things together, you put on a righteousness that is not yours with love, being what brings you in harmony together. And so children, you put your pajamas on at night 
You think about the fact that Jesus calls you as a Christian to take off old clothes, and I can't put my PJs on in public, but I can put a robe on. And he reminds us that you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, who loves you and cares for you so much. We are to take off the immorality that we once walked in, and we are to put on all the things which he calls us in love. And if that is true, if there is no limit to what God could ask of us, think of how different your life should and my life should be. And as we walk into this season of our church's life, we do so with this tremendous opportunity to embrace the responsibilities that we have, to be the kind of church you've always wanted to be a part of but been afraid to help make in this place. Use your gifts. Move toward people in love. If there are relationships or there are conversations in this room that you need to offer forgiveness or ask for forgiveness, then you need to move toward them. It is on you to do it. Don't wait for the other brother or other sister. If you want to demonstrate love toward others, how do you do that? You do that by thinking more highly of the other person than you do yourself. And you move toward them. This is how we walk in light of our new identity, how we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And what does it do? It brings harmony together. It allows us to experience for the first time the greatest story in the history of the world, the story of a hero who came, who conquered our greatest enemy of sin, and he rose again. He was resurrected from the dead. What story could possibly follow that one? Every story, every Marvel movie, every story and fairy tale all have their derivatives in that great story of Christ redeeming us through the veil of death. And if that is true, and it is, there is no limit to what he could ask of us. And that's terrifying. We live in an era that is newly awash in moral language, just like Colossae from discussions of white supremacy to sexual preference to the growing awareness we have of systemic injustices, of the awful nature and reality of sex trafficking in our world today, to the abuse of the foster care system and the need to nurture so many of these young children. And there's a real element in, a, in this cultural awakening, a real element of hope and the ways in which virtue and vice are not forged on islands of independent, isolated individuals. They're formed in communities. And you see communities all over the place fighting to form a kind of morality. There are ins and outs. There are excommunications, though they're not talked about in that way. They become, they become religion all their own. Syncretism. In this city, for example, people have replaced the church with a kind of belonging on sports teams, and so they long to be part of sports teams because it just scratches an itch that they once found in the church, but we've abandoned the church, and so we're trying to find it in a hundred other places. You can't. It's not because the church is perfect. Of course it's not. But Jesus uses the church to shape us and mold us, and we have responsibilities to live into who we are. And the, after decades of creeping relativism in our country, Today's embrace of moral truths comes at a very precarious moment because it's your truth for you and it's my truth for me. And what Paul wants to say to us now, just like he says there, is there is an 
If there is no overarching narrative to make sense of the world, you are like a ship out on sea without a compass. And your goal is just to survive. What kind of existence is that? What if you're on the wrong boat? And the gospel gives us resources to understand, to set your mind, to live with integrity in a society that has become completely divided on truth. And we have died. And we have been raised again with Christ. Set our minds upon the things that are above. Change your clothing. Fight to take it off so that you can put on what is true, beautiful, and good as he lays out in these passages for us. And be at peace with one another. And when we have learned to put the old ways to death and we find the new ways possible, we find that we are beginning to taste what it's like to be in union with Christ, to allow our subjective experience to actually match what is objectively true of us, that you're his and that he loves you and that Christ intercedes, having been resurrected at the right hand of the Father this very moment for you. And so as you come to this table this morning, you come hungry, you come thirsty, you come, Lord, just give me a taste, give me a taste of what communion with you looks like and be the kind of people, responsible people that Christ calls us to do in leading with love in light of all that he has done for us. For we have been raised with Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Do you believe this? It's true. And if it's true, then there is no limit to what God could ask of us. I know that's terrifying. That's why we come to the supper for strength. And so come to this table and he will meet with you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to put off the old and put on the new. Not by our own self-effort but because of our new identity in Christ, we run to obey your law in joy because of who you've called us to be. Help us, Lord, to bear with each other, to forgive each other, just as you have forgiven us. And above all these things, oh, Father, help us to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And as, Father, as we give our tithes and offerings, may that just be one small response to you asking whatever of us you so desire. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.